there's something pretty magical about a good knock-knock joke. You say, knock-knock. Someone else says, who's there? Two syllables into it, and you're already getting positive feedback. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about Clubhouse and other choices you need to make as a creator in 2021. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. People need a sense of belonging whenever they move to a new town or place. I've been piloting volunteer-led newcomers welcoming clubs, which are for newcomers and those who want to welcome them. I've developed a way of building such clubs at near zero cost that can work anywhere. If you want to create one of these inclusive and tolerant newcomers welcoming clubs, I'll support you free of charge. Just write to me at richardlucas at richardlucas.com. I'll send you more information and invite you to an onboarding call about how it works. Can't wait to hear from you. Clubhouse, in April 2021, valued at more than $4 billion by some smart investors, even though the software itself is not that hard to clone. There are literally dozens of companies that are making copies of Clubhouse right this minute. Clubhouse, a site where people show up and then they show up again. It's sticky. They stay for hours. Clubhouse, that place that people who are in it can't stop talking about. It seems like the first rule of Clubhouse is that you always talk about Clubhouse. My question for you is not, did Clubhouse do a whole bunch of things right? They did. The question is, are those things they did right, right for you? The question is, should you have a podcast or should you be on Clubhouse? It's a question that isn't about Clubhouse at all. It's about the choices that so many of us need to make about the information we consume and, more important, the information we spread as we seek to lead and change our culture. I've sponsored your appointment because I feel you are the most able statesman in all Fredonia. Well, that covers a lot of ground. The future of Fredonia rests on you. So, what did Clubhouse do right? Well, we've already mentioned the fact that it's sort of exclusive. You needed an invite to get in. They were very careful about who they seated the invites with. And then they quickly pushed those people to be able to invite just a few other people. Scarcity and affiliation in a magical dance. When you're on Clubhouse, they quickly scan your address book so they know who you know. It seems like they're doing it for you, but they're doing it for them. Because once they know who you know, they're more likely to connect you with them. And what they learned from Facebook and then from Pinterest is that if you build a network, a place with people you know, you're more likely to come back to see what they're up to. They also made it really clear who's following you and built in a quick status game for you. How many followers do you have? Could you get more followers? What's the best way to get more followers? I know, invite other people to join because if they join, they're going to follow you and then your status will go up. And this status game, the social media status game of likes from people who don't like you, friends from people who aren't actually your friend, putting those numbers front and center pushes people who are looking for a short-term endorphin hit to do it more. Quickly, you discover the right way to use Twitter if you want your numbers to go up. 
And so the culture is defined, not defined on what you want, not defined on what kind of interactions you're having, but defined on what they want, on which numbers they want to go up. And as you're busy using Clubhouse, they're constantly showing you other places where the people, the cooler people than you, are hanging out. And with just a click, you can join in as well. The end result of all this is that the first 5 or 10 or 15 minutes you're using Clubhouse, there's this endless series of endorphin hits. It has been optimized more than just about any social experiment I've ever seen to create a buzz early on, to let you believe you've done something right, but also to yearn to do it more, to make your score go up, to help your numbers improve. And yeah, I've been invited to be on some things on Clubhouse. I've done a few, and I've seen the manipulation that's going on. Why is it called manipulation? Well, here's the question. Is it in your long-term interest? So a friend of mine, if she had a podcast, would have 30,000 people listening to it. She's that connected, that insightful, that generous, that much of a leader. When she shows up on Clubhouse, a thousand people listen to her live. Now, a thousand people is a lot for a clubhouse room, but it's not 30,000. And more important than that, the relationship with the audience belongs to clubhouse. We learned this from Facebook in the old days. People thought, I know, I'll just go to a platform that will bring me an audience. And they considered their followers their followers. And then one day, Facebook started throttling the newsfeed. They started making it so that not all of your followers could easily organically follow you. You had to pay money to boost. Hit the boost button, 25 bucks. You can reach, quote, your people. They're not your people. They belong, their attention belongs to the central authority that is manipulating and directing that attention. The thing about podcasts, which are based on the RSS technology, is that nobody owns the follower list. It's more like a frequency on the radio dial where the people who listen to you have it pre-built in to their tuner. What that means is that there isn't somebody who can disintermediate you, someone who can push you out of the way, someone who can ask you to hit the boost button. That the people, thank you very much, who listen to this podcast have chosen to listen to this podcast. I don't have to go out and chase you down every week. I don't have to worry about whether or not something's getting filtered. The day the podcast isn't worth your time is the day you'll stop listening. That's not what's happening on Clubhouse. Now, the essential model of the Clubhouse structure is that you can only listen to one thing at a time. That's not true when we think about most of the surfing that people do on the web. The web is the home of multitasking. But listening to a live broadcast on Clubhouse, well, you might have it on in the background, but you're definitely not listening to two things at once. Also, with audio, discovery is really hard. And one of the things that Clubhouse did was make it so that you can discover things based on who you follow. But still, the model is fraught because there's this desire to be front and center to make your numbers go up this inability to have actual subscribers, this lack of any sensible way to monetize what you're doing. The very idea 
that you can archive stuff from Clubhouse, that was pretty new. Recording was prohibited for a while. And I'm not aware of someone who's taking those recordings and doing something useful with them. So again, I'm not here to rant about Clubhouse. If it's working for you, please do. What I'm saying is too often we are seeking attention, but we make the mistake of embracing short-term attention, short-term positive feedback, easy to measure numbers, instead of signing up and sticking with something for the long haul. My blog has been running for 20 years. I'm in the 8,000s when it comes to posts. This podcast has had more than 200 episodes, drip by drip, week by week, listener by listener. These are assets that you can build on your way to changing the culture. So one of the fascinating things about Clubhouse is how many people on Clubhouse not only talk about Clubhouse, but talk about monetizing Clubhouse. There is this belief every time a hot new social media platform shows up that the people who get in early will somehow get some sort of special benefit, like racing to the front of the auditorium to get really good seats before some rock band plays. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. The people who got in early at Twitter, the people who got in early at Facebook, their head start evaporated. It evaporated fast. My blog wasn't the first blog. My blog wasn't the last blog. Same as this podcast. That's not the urgency. The urgency is to choose a platform, a place that's yours, where you can show up and create a body of work, where you are doing it for you and your listeners or your readers or the people you're engaging with and connecting, not for someone who seeks unicorn status in the valley, because if you aren't paying for it and they have structured it to give you endorphin hits, you're not the customer, you're the product. And understanding that you are the product that is going to be sold to someone someday, because these people don't value a company for six or eight billion dollars because they're good people. They do it because they think it's worth more than that. And for it to be worth more than that, someone's gonna pay. Maybe you'll pay to reach a bigger audience. Maybe advertisers will pay to reach you and your audience. So, yeah, if you're enjoying the ride, please keep chatting. But as we look at each new platform that shows up, and there are new ones coming all the time, we have the opportunity to ask ourselves a question. It's a simple one. What's in it for me? I know what's in it for me to listen to the radio. I know what's in it for me to write my blog. I know what's in it for me to engage with a friend on a walk through a forest. I'm not exactly sure why it pays to spend the time to invest in a platform, any platform, where you don't own anything when you're done. Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a couple of questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. 
So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you got a question about this or any previous episode or anything else on your mind, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Two good questions this week, each one of which probably could be an episode unto itself. Here we go. Hello, Seth. It's John here in the UK. Recently, online, I have seen all sorts of analogies being created to do with vaccinations that try and persuade people one way or the other why they should or shouldn't have the vaccines for COVID. But these have been posted by people who I thought were quite intelligent. Yet the analogies they put forward are often so different to the point they're trying to make. I don't see I just I am flummoxed as to how they can see that they make that they make any sense to their argument, and I was wondering what your thoughts were on these sorts of statements where because of this over here, that over there must be true, even though they are not related. What is the mindset? What is the human mindset that grabs onto these things and thinks, "Ah, yes, a and therefore b." when there is no link between the two. Thanks very much. Love what you do. Cheers. Thanks for this, John. I believe analogies are a skill. They're not a talent. We're not born with them. But being able to argue and learn from analogies is a skill. The way I know that is because they're on the SAT. But I also know that because some people aren't as good at them as other people. And I've seen people get better at them. An analogy is a grappling hook. It is a ladder. It is a chance to take the thing you know about one thing and put it to work to understand another thing. Using symbolic logic, using an understanding of how things work, you can get really good at using analogy to understand. I trained as a mechanical engineer. I never practiced, but One of the things that you learn in engineering school is that there are things that work and things that don't. It's not like English literature in which there are opinions, but even in English literature, the opinions need to be grounded often in an argument that works from analogy. The legal system is nothing but a series of analogies in the way that they are written down and in the way that we litigate in court. Well, If A gets you B and C is like A, we must get to D. And 
This is something that we can learn. So what does this have to do with your question? It is also true that human beings use words because they are trying to express emotions. They are trying to talk about their beliefs. But as an adult, it's not okay to have a tantrum. As an adult, we don't really reward people for just yelling. And so people adopt various postures, various kinds of words, when it sounds like they are making a certain kind of argument, what they might actually be doing is simply putting their emotional range on display. They might actually be saying, I am upset about something or I want something to happen and I don't have good words to make that rational sort of argument. Because we added rational sorts of arguments last in our evolutionary journey. My dog doesn't know how to make rational arguments and neither does an earthworm. That what happens first and foremost is that human beings process information with quick response, with emotional response. And it's only after that happens that we add the narrative and that we add our rational description of what happened. And so I am not saying that people who are bad at making analogies are dumb. They're not. What I'm saying is two things are happening at the same time. First, that there is a skill that they might not have acquired, which is cleverly and effectively using analogies to make an argument to somebody who is having an argument at that rational level. And two, they are talking about their needs, their fears, their desires, the things that are urgent to them, but using a different vocabulary. And they are confusing us because we thought they were doing one thing when they're actually doing the other. And the practical takeaway is this. If you are trying to persuade somebody who is good at arguing with rational analogy, it helps to be good at arguing with rational analogy. On the other hand, if someone isn't good at it, it might be helpful to say, what are they actually trying to say? Because our emotional state is not trivial and our emotional state is not unimportant. It is often different from our rational state. Hey Seth, my name's Mark, I'm from Scotland. Love what you do and I love how your brain works. I have a question around scaling up and I guess moving from a small company to a large company um, and branding and around that aspect of things. A lot of the, when I started out, I, a lot of it was controversial. I was um, starting in the pet food, wasn't happy with what was being sold. And I was asking a lot of questions. Now, as we've grown and we've developed a brand, I feel the brand of the company is slightly different to myself, who's CEO. Is it a good thing for a CEO to keep their brand separate? Uh, for example, Elon Musk and all the different companies that he runs or Richard Branson versus Virgin. How do you work having a, a CEO brand versus a company brand where I might be one, maybe want to be a bit more controversial where the company maybe wants to toe the line or have a, a softer, soft approach? Love what you do. I'd love your uh, feedback on this one. Thanks for this, Mark. I think that your question about personal brands and brands has changed a bunch because of social media and because of our culture's obsession with the individual. But let's think about, I don't know, a car company, a car company with a super famous CEO, someone who's maybe a bit of a troll, somebody who over time developed quite a reputation for being wrong about a bunch of things. Yes, I'm talking about Henry Ford. Henry Ford 
built the Ford Motor Company into one of the biggest and most important companies in the world, largely on the basis of insights about production, but also using a personal brand to get the attention of the media. He wrote a, for example, four-page article in the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is quite an accomplishment. And from that vantage point, was able to talk and educate people about what he had to offer. But you don't know who the CEO of Ford is. I certainly don't know who the CEO of Ford is because it doesn't matter. We don't want to know who the CEO of many companies is because their brand, our expectation for who they are and what they stand for is something broader than that. I don't expect Henry Ford's great-grandson to come to my house and fix something when it's broken, that the brand becomes something broader than that. Now, in social media, it is possible to create a spectacle and to use that spectacle to tell a story and to use that spectacle and that story to capture attention and to earn some level of trust or notoriety. But as organizations seek to cross the chasm from people who are rooting for you as if you're in some sort of movie, some sort of quest, into people who are rooting for themselves, who are buying something because of the story they get to tell themselves about who they are and where they're going. Sometimes it pays to say, you know what? You're not coming here because Howard Schultz is the CEO of Starbucks. You're coming here because when you go to Starbucks with a friend, it changes the way you feel. So I don't think we're past the era of the notorious CEO. I think it's going to be around for a long time. Social media loves this story. But I do think that the resilient path forward is to figure out how to stand for something that lots and lots of the people you seek to serve can embrace whether or not they know who you are. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.